All right, welcome everybody to this week's episode of the Church History Road Trip. Uh, I'm Rick Kleiner, and I'm joined as always with Greg Moore. Greg, how are you doing today? Rick, it has been a while. It's good to it's good to be here with you, and I'm you know I'm pretty tired. It's been a, a pretty uh, hectic couple of weeks, or more than a couple of weeks here um, with school starting. I know it's been pretty busy for you as well. Yeah, it's, it is. And, and it has been a while. It's good to be back and good to be chatting about some things. But our listeners don't know this. You know, of course, we're recording this on Zoom so we can see one another. I am recording from um, the second floor of the family room of the Casa de Kleinard. And you are recording <laughs> from the back seat of a town and country. You want to tell our <laughs> listeners why you chose to record in the back of no, your family wagon. <laughs> Yeah, so I've got I've got three young kids, and I was reading online. This has been a while back, because um, first of all, I'll, I'll say I like it when we're in person, and I could sit down with you, and we have the nice mics and stuff like that. Yeah. But but here, I have a pretty nice headset that I typically use for this kind of stuff. Um, but my kids, I'm sure right now inside the house, even though they they technically have gone to bed. They will be getting up for water, for animal stuffed animals, uh, to kiss the dog for the fifth time, for for every little thing. And so I was like, where can I find that is like a fortress of solitude? And like many that have gone before me, I've chose the Chrysler Town and Country. <laughs> now, are you in your garage? Yes. Yes. So, like, I'm I'm able to see through the the back window, <laughs> and it's like the garage door. I'm I was just so hoping that you were like on the street, and like somebody could walk by. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, my, and the lighting in here makes it look like I'm on the Blair Witch Project or something. Yeah, it's it really it's does. Kind of creepy. I'm sorry about that. Your headset's glowing, so it's kind of got a Tron meets Blair Witch thing going on, and I totally dig it. It's a good time to have this up. All right, so uh, we were going to talk. What 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 was your idea? You want to talk about this week on the road trip? Where do you want to stop today? Well, this is one of those places where I, I think it has a lot of practical application for the climate that we live in uh, hopefully it will help us kind of think through things as we go about our our um our daily walk and stuff but there's also a ton of historical tentacles into church history that i think we can delve into as well so the topic i was thinking about was how do we do how do we deal with failures in church leadership morality that might be pastors in historically speaking it might be popes or archbishops too, or, you know, key theologians or writers or what have you. Um, this has been a huge issue. And I know in the last year, um, we've both known a, of a number of folks and, and some of this is super public. And then I'm sure that we know of folks that uh, might be just local pastors or something like that, or people in the church that have had uh, various moral issues, especially for someone that you look up to. Or, you know, historically speaking, someone, someone you like to read, some theologian that you really like and have really got a lot, got a lot out, got a lot, I can't say it, got a lot out of right. the fumes in the Chrysler. <laughs> Get to me. You should, you should <laughs> turn the car off while you're doing it off. Yeah. Um, but those people that you that you've really mined their writings and their teaching or maybe their preaching, and then you find out some terrible thing about them. Um, how do you deal with that? And so I thought maybe we can just go around and um, kind of talk about that and talk maybe about some specific examples, um, whether that be contemporary or, or from 
from history? Yeah, that's a good, I think it's a good question. And you're right. It's extremely practical uh, in our day and age. We're not going to name any names of any specific leaders um, in within. Well, I wasn't (laughs) planning on doing that um, because I don't want this episode to not age well and to be like, Oh, remember when Rick said that and look at that fool now. Um, So um, I was also, I'm thinking specifically of uh, you and I've spoken about this before. I, I love certain theologians and then I make the mistake of reading a biography mm-hmm. and, uh, and oftentimes I've been disappointed. And I think maybe that has to do with the fact that I set this theologian or this person up on a pedestal and I'm looking for their biography to be something to the area of George Mueller praying for food for his orphans. And then I wound up getting that, Oh, this guy really didn't have a great marriage or he totally neglected his kids. And that kind of just taints um, the writing. And so uh, I do read these biographies and I enjoy them, but I'm, I'm careful reading them. I'll I'll give a few um, tales right away um, just because these are well-known books. Um, In my PhD work, uh, we were assigned the, the book, A Place at the Table, and it was the biography of the theologian uh, George Eldon Ladd. And here's a guy who all he wanted was a place at the, at the table, meaning the, the theological elite, the philosophers of his day. And you read his biography, and he just, his pursuit of that, sac- he sacrifices family, he sacrifices children, sacrifices his own health. And it was meant to be read as a, a cautionary tale for us. And, and I remember reading that thinking, okay, now why do I want to do this PhD stuff again? Why do I want to pursue something like this? Uh, and then we, of course, we know stories. And I'm thinking, again, more modern. There's the stuff around about Karl Barth. Um, and uh, I did, there's things that I read, you know, when, when he was uh, becoming very famous in uh, evangelical circles, even on Time Magazine, is the the world's most influential evangelical. Um, there were rumors of his infidelity, mm-hmm. and to the point where um, his own mother uh, spoke to him and said, "What good is it to be the greatest theological mind, but it doesn't change your heart?" And so, like those kinds of things, really hit me personally hard as a pastor, as a teacher, as a dad. Um, for me, always, there's, there's been a life verse. Um, we kind of joke a bit about life verses, but one that God has always just had in my back of my mind is uh, 1 Timothy 4.16. And on the HCSB, it says, be conscientious or keep a close watch, the newer translation says. Be conscientious about yourself and your teaching. Persevere in those things. For by doing this, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So he's saying they're not just watching what you teach, but watch your life, watch yourself, put a, put a guard on yourself. And so um, that's something that stuck out to me. I've always prayed the prayer, God, if, if I'm ever going to do something that's going to bring shame to your name, to the ministry, to my family, Lord, just hit me with a bus. I don't want that to ever happen. And because um, you see this in the lives of people throughout church history. Yeah. Yeah, fin- finishing well, right? And I, yeah. the part of that sh- certainly is um, having that balance between vocation and family, and especially when you're throwing in in today's world, you know, graduate studies or you know, PhD work or what you know, whatever you may be doing on top of that, it's a lot of um, it's it's a lot to juggle for I think for anybody, and I think some some folks just do it better than others. 
but it's something especially for those going into um, various forms of ministry have to be really careful of uh, because like you said there there's so many people that they get burned out that get um, uh, derailed in various ways um, slightly off topic I, I read a statistic a while back this may have changed if they've changed I guarantee it's gotten for the worst but it was a survey of Southern Baptist pastors um, I guess Southern Baptist churches maybe and after looking over this they determined that the average um, pastor in the Southern Baptist denomination stays there at a church for about 36 months hmm. I think a youth pastor was like 18 months and which is crazy to think about um, and I know some denominations, you know, they, they switch them out like tires every, every couple of years, you know, they just rotate you around. Um, but these were cases, a lot of times of people getting burned out in ministry, they're doing too much, or maybe they're given and given and given through their ministry, but they're personally, you know, they're becoming empty inside of, you know, from not being for not studying for themselves and getting into the word themselves and um, feeling disconnected from those around them as well is, a, is another common thing that you see in a lot of these studies. But um, I'm, I'm certain you've seen that with, with various pastors that you've known um, and other, other folks in ministry. Yeah. So where do we see this? Cause we are on the church history road trip and mm-hmm. we're, I think we've seen this several places, but there are, and rather than going through the um, the sordid history of the church, because it can be sordid enough as it is, um, first name that popped in my head, and it, it's kind of a different, so so kind of hear me out. My first one I heard was, was Augustine. Um, you know, Augustine was a pretty horrible <laughs> guy before his conversion, and then after his conversion, um, you know, just kind of remained a, a lifelong celibate due to the fact that uh, those uh, romantic relationships were such a, such a, had such a hold on him. Um, so he's kind of the reverse of it. He's the one who said, all right, you know, I failed morally before and I saw the danger of moral failure. So I'm going to go in the opposite direction. And then from there, you have some who followed suit after him saying that's the best way to be. And so then you have the celibacy of the priesthood kind of become a canonical thing, a doctrinal thing. You had to be. Um, I, I don't believe that's where Augustine was heading. I just think that's what my personal opinion on Augustine or Augustine. I'm sorry. I keep saying that Augustine's a city in Florida. My personal opinion on Augustine is that he, he saw the danger in his own life. So he chose to avoid it like the plague and, and, you know, kudos to him for seeing his, his, his weakness. I think part of it too, he was right in city of God by the time he became Bishop. So I don't think he had a lot of time on his hand for dating, but uh, <laughs> that's just me. Well, but, I mean, it's, you know, it's I, true I, when I, you're writing a dissertation, you know, what do they call the PhD widows? Yeah. you do. So he's, he's writing a, I get it. So, so this is a guy that was by, by, I would say Christian standards. He lived a very immoral life. Eventually, was saved, became a key church leader, theologian, writer, and did not no longer live that lifestyle. The biggest problem I I have is with hypocrisy, which, like you alluded to, is kind of the opposite of that, where someone says, "This is how you should live. This is what you should do," and then you find out 
that's not how they're living. And I think especially yeah. of, um, uh, of a number of popes, <laughs> uh, you know, that have had, that have had children. It was public knowledge at the time. You can, there's a Google, there's a whole, I'm sorry, there's a whole Wikipedia article on sexually active popes. <laughs> yeah. A whole Wikipedia article. Oh, yeah. Wow. So, so <laughs> you can go there and, and, uh, Wait, so where did you, okay. okay. <laughs> How did I get there? It's a yeah. Where, I mean, what rabbit hole did you fall down <laughs> to find remember. that page? Okay. I don't remember. All right. Um, I just recall that, but, but that's, that was one of the issues that the reformers had. Not only did you have the, the top echelons mm-hmm. of their church saying you need to be celibate, you need to be celibate. And then you look at their life and they're not, but yeah. you had the, the lower priesthood as well. Yeah, was sexually active. They were supposed to be celibate, but they weren't. And so, for for me, if you, I, I would not adhere to a mandatory celibacy of of the clergy or you know of the pastorate. Um, but at the same time, if if you are going to hold to that, if that's going to be part of your canonical law, then there shouldn't be a hypocrisy there, you know. And right. so that that bothers me probably more than the actual theology of that. And we have several instances of this. We have seen, we have episodes. I'm, I'm thinking of Erasmus, who himself was the illegitimate son of, I believe, a Dutch priest. And then um, you had uh, situations where, you know, you had these illegitimate children born to these high up level in the in the Catholic Church, who were then being appointed to certain places in the church. So you had um, preferential treatment as well. Um, and then I'm thinking, I'm trying to remember where it was. It just popped in my head. And so just, just so our listeners know, we don't use show notes. We're just, this is all, um, all, you know, coffee and, and brain cells at the time we're thinking this. Um, there was one place where I think the phrase I read, I'm not sure which church history book it was. I believe it was by Timothy um, George, where he said um, that there were spiritual sisters who were suddenly becoming spiritual mothers in a sense, like they were, these were sisters, but they were becoming mothers, not, not spiritual mothers in a sense of they were looking after children, but that they were starting to have children. How are these, these you know, women who've kind of given themselves over to celibacy in the, in the serving, serving the Lord. Now they're somehow becoming moms because they're interacting with these, these priests. Is that something you you remember? Is that familiar with? I'm trying to remember where that exactly was written. I don't remember exactly where that is, but yeah, there, there's many instances yeah. of, of folks in monasteries um, mm-hmm. where it's obvious that that things aren't locked down no. at, at times, no. and so um, and that's why there uh, were several monasteries being formed at the time. There were people saying, yeah. "Hey, this one's corrupt, so let's go make another one." Um, and you start seeing that a lot. Yeah, I mean, Benedict, when he when he showed up early on in his ministry, the guys that were around him said, we really appreciate the way you live. We want to live like you. And so Benedict said, all right, you got to follow all these rules. And they try to poison him because they didn't, they didn't like his rules. Yeah. Wait, so, oh, easy, Benedict. We were just kidding. Don't yeah, go too strict, far. Strict living, it was certainly not for everyone. And especially in the Middle Ages where you have really, really the church being the way out for a lot of a lot of people we can't support our our son we can't support our daughter financially um or this is this could be a way out of this poverty that we're living in not everyone was like that but 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 a number were and you got to the point where you know you get to the time of the reformation and there's there's too many priests by by many accounts and you had uneducated priests that um 
again, we're supposed to be the spiritual leaders, but didn't know anything. Was it Minnow Simons? He, he became a priest and he was so happy the day that he became a priest because he was able to brag that he had never once read the Bible. And, uh, and he said, one of my friends read it, read it partially through. He was also a priest. And, uh, but that's the kind of, that's the kind of training they would get by the end of the Reformation. And, uh, later on, just some, any Catholic hearers don't, don't take great offense, but in, in the Catholic Reformation that came later, you had folks like the Jesuits that would really ramp up the training for that kind of stuff because it, it was an issue to the point where even the Catholics said this needs to change. And that was one of the key changes they made uh, after the Protestant Reformation. As we're thinking about how we as Christians should respond today to these kinds of things, I all, I'm going back to the early church, first century, second century, um, time period with the Donatist or Donatus and Cyprian. Mm-hmm. And what I'm speaking about there uh, is that, you know, we, you have the church has just endured the, the persecution that started under Nero and it went around, it went on until eventually in 325 Christianity is made legal. Um, you can, you're no longer put to death for being a Christian. It wasn't the official religion of the empire as is commonly thought. It was just a legal religion. And then you had, all right, what do we do now with these Christians who gave in to persecution? You know, they were, they were tempted um, to buy the labelli, the sacrifice certificate, or to, to offer that incense to um, Caesar and say that Caesar is Lord. And so what do we do with them? You know, do we, they wanted to come back into the church and so there were really two schools of thought. You had Donatists who would saying, nope, you're done. You, 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 you screwed up and you're gone. You're not with us. And you had Cyprian who was saying, okay, we should bring them back in. But, you know, for certain levels of, um, or, or for whatever level of offense it was, there should be some level of penance um, that you experience. And so, and for for the sake of time, we'll get into it. But Cyprian, like I think it was something to the effect of, if you did it willingly, yeah, you're not coming back. If you gave in due to like a threat of financial need, necessity, maybe even death, uh, you could come back, but you had to offer some kind of penance. And that's where we see the development of of the the idea of penance as we see it uh, flesh out later on. So I want to kind of apply that a little bit to our current culture, um, where it's almost like when a, when a leader falls, they have that, there's that almost obligatory three to four months. You never hear from them, maybe even up to a year. And then all of a sudden, Oh, look at that. This so-and-so has got a new ministry. And, you know, and then people are like, well, it's been a year. It's fine. And, And so then the conversation becomes, well, was there repentance? Was there not? Are we the judge of it? Should we be the judge of it? Is it up to us at all? Shouldn't it be a job to the local church? Is it up to Christian Twitter to decide, which I hope that's not the case. <laughs> I hope not too. <laughs> but but those, are the, those are the conversations we're having now. And you're seeing it like specifically on like places like Twitter, which is, you know, is, let's just be honest, it's a cesspool. Um, but, you know, what, so next, the next question becomes, why should I care? Uh, if a local church has forgiven a fallen pastor. So that's, I thought I'd just throw that question out to this, to this conversation. Should I, or what do you think? It's an interesting way to phrase that because a lot, of, especially in our culture, especially if they're a public figure, we assume automatically that it's our business, whether that's a Christian leader or some entertainer 
or, or whatever. It's, it's our business. You can go to the, the local grocery store and find those magazines where, you know, it, intimate life details of, you know, all these, all these key celebrities yeah. and stuff. Right. So I, I would say that there, I think there is an angle there where I suppose it is little of our business um, in some, in some regards. Um, at the same time, I guess a lot of times my larger concern, especially with one, some of these big names um, that, that come out with various, uh, whether it's infidelity or whatever the issue may be, is what that does to the witness of the church in our country in general. And that, that to me is where I've seen the biggest change in the last four years or so. Yeah. Um, especially in our new current cancel culture uh, mindset. Um, and in seeing that, I think I'd agree with you that there, but it's so hard because like yeah. some of this stuff is, I mean, you're talking like sexual abuse issues. And, I mean, right. And, and, and I think that's a totally different level, totally different conversation. And, um, but if, if we're talking about something where the husband and wife have worked it out, they're reconciled the, the local church, you know, wherever that may be for them. Yeah. Um, you know, even if that church wants to call them, back as a, as a leader, I would probably disagree with that. But at the same time, I, I'm not, I'm not there. I'm not their bishops. <laughs> so yeah. I can't really tell them. Yeah. Um, let's see a couple of years ago in a church history class, um, something was happening in the current culture, church culture, and students were asking me, you know, how I would, how would you have handled that? How do you think that went down? How do you think they did with that? And I said, well, number one, I'm not the leader of that local church. And we have to remember that even though something is made public, that doesn't mean I now have a vote. Uh, that church is a congregational church. I'm not a part of that congregation. I don't get a vote. I can say, hey, I maybe I would have done it differently, but that that's not my call. Now, and you made a good point a minute ago, especially when you talked about sexual abuse. That's a totally different conversation. Um, I think when I was mentioning it, I was more referring to those pastors who have their their elders, their fellow elders have maybe even said, hey, we've noticed this about you. Um, you, you maybe I've, I've heard this recently. I'm not, again, no names, but this person has had, you've had a history of bullying or you may have, um, we've, I've, I've even seen situations of those who are struggling with, with alcohol, um, use uh, and kind of drink using it as a coping mechanism Mm -hmm. to get through the day, um, all the way to not quite infidelity, but they've had inappropriate relationships with with uh members of the opposite sex not sex not their spouses again we're not talking about sexual abuse in a sense like we've seen in other places Mm -hmm. um and but i I, and i would say there and this is just my opinion and that and dollar 50 will buy a cup of coffee but it's the idea that in those situations um you're done uh and i think that's that's not even a that's, that's a legal issue the church that's not something we should take over and say, well, we're going to take care of it. We won't let the authorities know. No, we're legally, we know that you're legally required to turn those things in. Um, I think that for me personally, that's a, that's a, you're done. That's a done. So, um, and then I can only speak for me personally in the other matters. Um, I've only mentioned this and I've mentioned this in class before that while my church may forgive uh, my mistake, uh, I, I'm stepping away. Whether or not you forgive me or not, that's not the issue. I'm stepping away because that's what I see in Scripture. That that, that that's the thing about, especially we're talking about church leaders here. We're talking about pastors mainly. 
Um, if you look at the qualifications of a pastor in Timothy and in Titus, those are all moral qualifications except for ability to teach. Um, so that means this office is a moral office. Uh, so, which means it, sh- it can and should be lost for a moral, mis- you know, a, a moral compromise or a moral mistake, if you will. And I know some listeners may disagree and, and yell out about grace and forgiveness, and I totally get it. I'm just speaking for me. This is something I've decided in my own heart that I would step away uh, due to the fact that this is a moral calling. And I, if I have failed that way, then I do not have that right to enjoy that office. Um, that's just my, my two cents. Yeah. Hey, I, have a, I have a question for you. Okay. So as we look at historical leaders, historical church leaders and theologians, I'm going to bring up, let's say, John Calvin, okay? Yeah. Um, I've, I've had a lot of folks th- throughout my classes um, either really attracted to, to John Calvin or yeah. really against him, even though a lot of times yeah. neither He's side. A polarizing guy, John Calvin. Neither side really knows apparently what he teaches, and, no, no. you know, because a lot of these might be um, undergrads or whatever. But, uh, <laughs> you know, one of the things that is always brought up by, by his detractors is. Yep. Um, Severus. Yeah, he, he put he put him well, he consented to his death. Yeah, right? there it is. The 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 argument is you we picture Calvin holding the torch. <laughs> yeah, he didn't like the match. Yeah. He okay. just consented to it. Um but if you read some of his correspondence, it was pretty strong. He said if if he gets here, he will not to some effect he won't make it out. Like yeah. well, it's, it's, all, right, all right, John, that's pretty strong. What I do a lot of times to to talk about that, they're like, "Oh, we can't listen to him because this is what he did." Right. I'm like, "Well, well, who who do you like? Luther? All right. Well, yeah, he he wrote this treatise against the Jews. You ever read that? Yeah. Right. Um, you know, and occasionally someone will bring like Wesley, and I have to tell them, of course, Wesley was a cannibal. Um, that's not true, <laughs> but, but, but I but I tell them that because I don't really have any dirt on Wesley. But there, there's so many folks that if you if you're to read all their writings, yeah. certainly there's going to be obviously stuff that you disagree with. But mm-hmm. then there is stuff that is morally questionable, even yeah, uh, both either in their actions or in their writings. Yeah, and I think Luther is one. I absolutely love some of the writings by Luther. His preface to Romans, yeah. I absolutely love it. Um, not a big fan of his anti-Semitic writing. I'm glad you said that. <laughs> but but how do, like how do we how do we deal with that? Uh, and I've known I've known a lot of people that are from some top divinity schools that say just don't have anything to do with Luther. Hmm. Well, how, how do you how do you like how do you do that? Uh, he's a he's the a good pillar of our of the yeah. of the Reformation, and it's it is hard to navigate some of these folks and and what they're teaching when you know like you said when you know some of these theologians had this going on in their life or they stated this or you know they ended up doing this or that yeah and it's a good question um and as you're talking up you're you're mentioning luther you're mentioning uh calvin i was also thinking of of again Karl bart as i mentioned earlier about his uh alleged infidelity that as i was asking about i was doing some work, like I said, in the PhD work. And I finally just said, do, do we know this is something or is this just, and uh, then my professor goes, well, his mom did say this. So it was pretty, I was like, okay, that make it all right. That if mom knows, uh, must be something prevalent. Um, but yeah, but, but I can't not engage with Bart in some way, some way, yeah. um, because really Bart, his, the way he thought 
I'm, I'm dealing with that now and how people think. Um, and so he has affected theology since, since he came on the scene. Like you mentioned Luther. How do you, how do you not deal with Luther? How, how do you not interact with him? And how do you not interact with Calvin? doesn't mean we have to wholeheartedly embrace their, their stuff, um, but you have to, you can't just cancel and say this person never existed. Um, you, you can't just remove them. Um, I think as I'm, as I'm teaching through church history, I, I can't underemphasize him for that. Yeah. For that as well. So what I end up doing, it's like, here he is. Right. And here's, here's some blemishes he had. Here's some things he did pretty awesome. Here's yeah. some reading I want you to read, but also read this too. And right. um, I, tr- I, I try to present the, the whole picture, um, mm-hmm. but to, to omit him or to minimize him, I think would be difficult. Same, same yeah. with, with Calvin. Yeah. You have to address it. You have to, you have to talk about it, but like, I like how you said it here, here they are. Here's the, here's the good and the bad. Here's the ugly. It's all there because we have to be honest. Uh, it wouldn't be intellectually honest to um, ignore the bad or ignore the good on b- both those parts. You can't just have a, here's what's wrong with Luther stuff. You can't, you have to cover everything. Um, it's just, just like with any, um, okay. So for example, a, a number of years ago, we had a, a um, class and one of our history teachers was teaching, he was teaching us presidents. That was the class. And um, after a while we started realizing that, all the teacher was talking about was the weird stuff that these presidents did. And we're like, yeah, but they also did other stuff. So, but he highlighted all the weird stuff. It's all he talked about. Like which president did, the, you know, that makes for cool lectures, but you missed yeah, yeah, you got, you got the kid's attention, but all they Here's think Lincoln, he, he wasn't a fan of the theater. <laughs> wow. <laughs> sorry. Uh, yeah. A Lincoln joke. Really? I'm sorry, but the, but the, um, but that's the idea that we would just fo- just focus on that. But no, there's you need to. It's got to be symmetric. It's got to be symmetry. You got to give us everything. Yeah. Um, and I mean, years from now, if if somebody is so inclined and bored to to write our history, they need to give it all. Uh, they need to get. They need to say, hey, this Greg Moore guy, he was a really smart dude. Used to podcast from the back of his his uh, minivan, but you know, it's on him. He started Rick, a movement. Yeah, yeah. It did a movement. Um, the, the vehicle was moving. And so maybe we should do that. Like next episode, we're all in. The, I'm located here right now. I'm in, I'm in, the, I'm in the produce olive of food lion right now. Um, but, but anyway, you, who, who knows what posterity will say about us. And so, I, again, I go back to the First Timothy passage. That's where we keep a close watch on ourselves. We're not perfect. It, you know, there's dirt, there's dirt people could find on me. I keep those guys close um, just because they know secrets, but you know, it is. So those being, that being said, you have to teach it all. Otherwise it becomes, um, you know, just one-sided and lopsided. Yeah. I think this is connected to with, with humility and how we, how we deal with those that, that fall around us. Um, especially those within our church or within our circles. Um, but I, I think it's connected to our theology as well. When we are looking at those that disagree with us, Calvin or Luther, or whoever it may be, 
I think we should have places where we plant our flag theologically, but um, I think there, humility has to be a part of that. I think we have to be theologically humble, and I think we also need to be personally humble when we're dealing with some of these issues because, I mean, I would hope that I would never do some of these things, but we live in a fallen world and, you know, I, I, I know it, I know from scripture, it's a possibility. Mm -hmm. And um, there are a lot greater people in, in scripture that did some terrible things. And so uh, just being on guard and, and knowing that, that, um, that we should give grace where, where we can. And I think there's a part of us and I'm sure of it that we, we like it. Part of us, we like the scandal. We like it when that happens mainly because, Hey, it's not us. Look at, hey, we didn't do that. And it's somehow, like you said, it's our pride. It brings us up where we should not be. Um, we're thinking, oh, at least I didn't do that yet. yet, yet. Um, but, but like you said, you know, we are capable of, of that, of those things. We do understand depravity. We understand how far we could go. And that's why we have to put those guardrails up. I think that's a, I think that's a very good point you just made. All right, well, that takes us to the end of uh, this episode of the Church History Road Trip as we've talked about a little bit of a history lesson. And some of these things we've talked about today, if you want to know more about us, uh, know more about that, you can just uh, hit us up on our social media or you can email us. Um, we'd love to talk to you more about it, maybe give you some um, resources about where these things are found. Um, from the bottom floor of Casa de Kleinard and from the back of Greg Moore's minivan, this has been the Church History Road Trip. 